0: Catherine Nichols and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1939, and we'll be talking about Jean Reese's Good Morning Midnight. I have two guests for this conversation. Um, Sandra Lim is the author of many books of poetry, most recently The Curious Thing from 2021. And she was also a Guggenheim Fellow last year, so I felt very lucky that I got to record this conversation with her at the very end of 2021. And then Brian Hall who has been one of my favorite writers since I was a teenager. Obviously, I was thrilled that they both agreed to be on this podcast. Um, he's written many novels, most recently The Stone Loves the World, which I have been recommending to everyone I meet, so you should all read it. Um, to summarize Good Morning Midnight, it's uh, a modernist novel about a woman called Sasha Jensen, who is essentially an author stand-in character for Reese. Um, she's deeply depressed and running out of money in Paris, Uh, The structure is quite loose, and we'll talk about it more in our conversation, but it doesn't have a very conventional plot, except that Sasha is generally increasingly desperate for money, and at the end, she may or may not have died, depending on how you read the final scene. Um, Some people find this book depressing, others don't, and we'll talk about all of that. So, on to our conversation. Brian, you were the person who suggested this book initially, and um, I had never encountered it before. Um what what was the thing that drew you to it? This was the first time you read it too, right?
1: Yes. Well, that's an easy answer because Sandra, our other person here today, <laughs> is the person who recommended it to me. Uh so I'll let Sandra speak in in 20 seconds, but I I'd heard of Gene Reese, you know, for years and like so many people, so many authors, I had it in a pile somewhere and basically never got around to it. And I can't remember Sandra has written a poem called Jean Reese," which is in her latest collection. And I can't remember whether it's reading that poem. Sandra, you might remember. we were talking somehow it came up. and it was finally that kick in in my pants that got me to actually start to read her. And I was very enthusiastic. And so sandra, you 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 say then because you're really the origin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um I've I've always liked um I've always admired Jean Reese, the writer, but um I think, and I have, I did end up writing a poem called Jean Reese um in my latest book, The Curious Thing. Um and a lot of people who had read the poem would say, Oh, oh yeah, Jean Reese. A lot of people, sort of similarly to you, they're like, "Oh, I, yeah, White Sargasso Sea is the book that everyone thinks of, uh, which is wonderful." But my personal favorites are her earlier ones: these, the four books, the four earlier novels, and um, and Good Morning Midnight is a particular favorite. So I think um, I think that's what we're. I'm I'm sure I said that to you, Brian, when we were talking.
0: <laughs> I was yeah, really yeah. interested to notice that *White Sargasso Sea* was written so much later in her life. I um, it really seems like an almost completely different social context than than this was written into. This is you know published. It's 1939, right? Right. And *White Sargasso Sea* isn't until I think 1967. Is that right? Oh yeah. It's it's a very different world that she's writing in uh, for this one, which um, I thought that actually it it just gave both books actually a different flavor in my mind, even though I hadn't, you know, I hadn't fully formed like a, an idea of who she was before, you know, doing research for this podcast, but understanding that she had been part of this sort of earlier, I guess, modernist writing world before she became the person who wrote Ride Sargasso Sea was really interesting.
1: Yes. Uh, and- Sandra probably knows the most of the three of us, but I'll I'll throw in you know that 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 different world of those two books. The impression that I get in reading her biography about her about her life is that it's really like a a resurrection of her. She she had those four books. There was a small set of very enthusiastic readers, but after Good uh, Good Morning Midnight, she just disappeared. People didn't talk about her much. Not many people read her. And they wasn't even sure whether she was alive or not. And someone wanted to do a radio play, right, Sandra, for BBC of Good Morning Midnight. And they like tracked her down. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah, I I don't know all the specific details, but I think they were gonna do a radio play of Good Morning Midnight. And um I think at the time, because one of the reasons she sort of fell out of you know view, um, I mean, she was an alcoholic. (laughs) And I think by that time, living with her third husband or partner, um, like in a small town in England, and the neighbors hated her so much that when she finally found out that someone was like looking for her. I always remember some anecdotes, the neighbor, the neighbor was like, oh, there's this person that's trying to impersonate the writer, Jane Reese, you know, but it was absolutely her. So, um, somehow, and it's sort of amazing that she even read the notice where they were kind of looking for her. Um, I mean, today it's hardly, you just go on the internet that wouldn't happen, but it's really, it's fascinating how, how that happened. And then, um, and then I guess she started writing White Sargasso Sea.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it sounded like she she hadn't written because she had a feeling. Well, a she was drinking a lot, and then and then B a sense of having no audience, and and it was something to do, I think, with this enthusiastic small band uh, that that she either started or returned to some old drafts that were Sargasso Sea and, and started to work again. Um, and, you know, I've in getting ready for this, since her novels aren't very long, um, I went ahead and read all of them. And it's interesting that um, I agree, I mean, I think, I, I guess I agree a fair amount with Sandra that Wine Sargasso Sea is a great book, um, but there's really something pretty special about these four earlier books. And you get this slight sense that, you know, did White Sargasso Sea do so much better because it's connected with Jane Eyre. Um, and that's not to not to denigrate it at all because she does a, a wonderful thing with that. Um, but I actually hesitated reading White Sargasso Sea for years precisely because I'd always heard. It was like, oh, a prequel to Jane Eyre. Uh, and I just thought, oh gosh, why would... Uh, I, I don't like it when people, you know, da da da, ride on the coattails of another book. But that's a completely wrong way of thinking about that book. Um, but I do wonder if that's what made it a bigger deal.
2: Yeah, I I wish I had, I didn't have time. Um, I was trying to, I think because you said you were reading them again, or like reading them for the first time all in a row. I read... Quartet. I think after leaving Mr. McKenzie is the only one I haven't reread in a while, although that's one of the most devastating ones, I, I must say. Um, and then I didn't get to a wide Sargasso sea. But I also think it's interesting. I sort of had a similar reaction like you way back when, when I was interested in Jean Race, where I was like, well, oh, she's doing something with the um with Jane Eyre and then everyone always like it's a feminist retelling or etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And post-colonial. And and I was like, oh, the shorthand just bothered me. So I think I left it off for a long time too. Although it is interesting that probably, I mean, they're all somewhat autobiographical, but um or very autobiographical in a lot of ways. But wide Sargasso Sea is the one that deals head on with, you know, um the West Indies and her coming over. Um, So I always thought that was really interesting too. And she was so, she spent so much time on that last one. Like her editor had to like pull it out of her hands because she would just kept revising apparently. So, yeah.
0: I think without White Sargasso Sea as as a piece of context for me to put together with uh, Good Morning Midnight, I wouldn't have seen this as, I think I probably would have seen it as feminist but I probably wouldn't have seen it as like I don't even know if it's post colonial at this point but like in relation to her having been raised in the West Indies and that that's um that she isn't perceived as white or english by other white english people necessarily and that, that that's part of why she is in the situation she's in um in this book um Right. I mean, because I, I think that and the question of madness, I think also, because like, obviously the white circus also see also, you know, the, the wife in the attic, she's in the attic because she's mad. But the question of like, well, what are the ingredients of madness? Um, and clearly in Jane Eyre, it's heavily implied that not being white is where the madness is coming from to some extent, you know, and I don't know, like this book is kind of. It's kind of a puzzle that you're not designed to be able to solve, in my opinion, entirely, because she's so depressed and she's constantly drinking and she's constantly trying to wear the right hat or the right clothing in general. But like there's the scene where she's in the hat store and she's trying on different hats and everyone's saying like, well, hats this season are unusually difficult to wear and that makes her feel better. Um, I mean, she's still not sure if she chose the right hat until she goes to a cafe and is drinking alcohol and has to decide if people are looking at her more than usual, like that would mean that she had chosen the wrong hat. Um, that sense of mismatch between herself and the world, like the lack of place that she actually should be. She can't get a room where she's constantly changing to different hotel rooms and she's constantly drinking and none of the relationships that she has, in, and she's constantly talking to people and interacting with people and connecting with people, but also disconnecting just, just as just as much. And she's terribly sad. And part of that's because she had a baby, and the baby died. Um, but the baby died because she was poor and because she didn't have any support. And it's like, well, why isn't there a place for her in the world? Why is she this sad? And part of it has to do with the madness that's created by a society that is rejecting her. Right. Like, does that seem right to you? Cause I was like, it's kind of a, just in this one text, maybe it's more clear from the other books, but it's like, well, why is, why is her life this bad? Mm-hmm.
2: I think she never in across all the books, there's this sense of like deep, like deracination, like she's not from anywhere. Yeah. Um, like she doesn't feel at home in, you know, the West Indies or she never feels at home in England. Um, yeah. And and in this book, I noticed writing or read writing, reading at this time, um, just the constant monologuing or thoughts in her head about the worry about looking English or not looking English enough or um, or or looking Parisian or whatnot, but she really seems, um, you know, I mean, she's like bohemian or part of that like sort of demimonde, as they say, in like the truest sense <laughs> somehow, like she just seems um, to have no background almost and um, it's very, it's very strange that she can create the effect because yes she's so depressed and sad but um and it's something hard to explain when i have friends who read it they're like but it's so depressing but i feel like it, there's a kind of detachment that um like i can go back to it and i don't feel pulled into depression in just sort of a psychological way i think cuz she creates this sense of detachment which is part of her problem too but um, but she's so funny. Even those hat the hat scenes and hat um,
0: scenes. yeah, like
2: it's just sometimes I'm like, oh my god, she's actually very very funny. I don't know how she does it. This is so amazing. It's the sensibility is so particular. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, I I um there's a quote somebody writing about King Lear years and years ago, and it always stuck in my head. I have to paraphrase because I don't have a good verbatim memory, but. It was basically, you know, this. This is a play about, you know, uh, emptiness, nihilism, despair, lack of God. Da, da 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 da. You know, such a horrible vision, and yet one leaves the theater elated at the artistic, you know, sort of mastery of of its creation. That this may be an empty world, but there is a person in it who could write King Lear, and and. I never get depressed by this, the actual depressing subject matter of books as long as I love what the writers doing with it. I come out instead feeling elated. Um, i get I only get depressed when I'm reading a book that I think is done in a clumsy, sort of boring, you know, uh, unoriginal. it has nothing, you know nothing to excite me. Um, that's what gets me down. And so i i, I think, yes she's definitely funny but even if she weren't funny um her eye is so good Mm -hmm. um she says so many well i guess you're always funny when your eye is really good and uh, because you're looking at people sharply and anytime you look at humans in a sharp way there's there's a comic element to it um
0: there is, but there also like there also isn't any um, archness. I thought like she isn't making fun of the people. She doesn't seem like it, there's some remove, like you were saying, but it's not um, scornful. I think that there's there's probably a way that this book could be written where she's just like surrounded by fools. What can I do? You know, and it's not that book, right? That's my feeling. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That's the thing. Because then it would just be, and I think that keeps it also from even when she's looking at herself, it's not like pitiful or, or self pitying. Yeah. Um, she can have that kind of sort of detachment. Um, and she's always wanting to just be like a normal person or an ordinary person, <laughs> um, as she said, as she keeps saying in the book. Um, I thought one of the funniest moments was. I just forgot it, but when I was rereading it, she's like, "I'm." I think when she's talking to uh, Renee, the the gigolo, mm-hmm. um, the gigolo sort of super soul mate. Um, when she's like, "I'm a cerebral or whatever," and I was like, "Let me just look that up to make sure." And she's like, "I'm I'm an intellectual," you know, mm-hmm. and he's. She's like, what if I wrote a book called This and This? Oh, but of course no one would take me seriously unless it was a man. I'm like, this he moves like this. It's very interesting, you know, but after then, scene, after scene.
0: Oh, no, I it, it's just finally like his reproach to her, right? Toward the end is he's saying like, it's you're just obsessed with your dirty mind, your dirty brain. And it's like the same, <laughs> word, or like nearly the same word in French. Um, and uh-huh. and I thought that that was kind of like a, a callback where it's like, your life isn't actually bad. It's your it's your brain that's bad. It's and, um, which I and he also sorry. Oh no! I just think it's like almost objectively false. You know, it's like no, her life is really bad. <laughs> it's like and uh, yeah, and, he, really and he also says to basically to think it's her that's doing it. He also.
1: He also um, basically denies the possibility of women really being cerebral. Anyway, he says, you know, women who think that they're think that they're cerebral, think with their brains or what they believe is their brains. Um, I, I think Renee is is a, you know, she, she wanders around and she meets these various people. They kind of you know, approach her on the street. You know, almost everyone she meets is on the make in some way, as is she in a much more vulnerable way. But all the men and and uh, and 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 this vision we have of walking down the street in Paris and everyone in this part of the society is nobody has any money and they're all trying to figure out how can they get money from somebody else? Mm -hmm. And she's talking about the humorous elements, this fur coat that she's wearing through the whole part of the book, which is in the present Um, except, you know, there's that middle part in the past, but this, this fur coat, which basically fools everyone. She's completely penniless, but she's got this one fur coat and she hasn't sold it because she's found out that you can't get much money for selling them anyway. And also she's cold all the time. And so it's like the, the only thing that's keeping her alive and these men keep approaching her. And Renee among these people, he's he is the one who takes up the most space in the book because he's completely incapable of taking no for an answer. She never believes a word that he tells her. Um, and she, and he basically never believes her. He keeps thinking that she must have some money or something. He keeps trying to get something out of her. Um, and as Sandra said, I mean, you, you, you can't write stuff like this and see this in, in a, in a sort of a clear way without it being quite funny underneath all of the, all of the bleakness.
0: You know, it reminded me of, um, Orwell's down and out in Paris and London, um, because it's like a very similar situation kind of, but there's one part in that one where Orwell says like, it's weird how all the tramps are men. I guess women just get married. And I think that that, implicit idea that he doesn't really pursue or really think about what that would mean right. if you have absolutely no options and you have to depend on like some guy is that your life would actually be what what she's describing which is um, like kind of terrifying degree of vulnerability because like when she does have a baby she does not like that all of this the sexual favors she's trading, like that they will eventually at some point result in babies at some point. And mm. um that then she's in this really gross, nasty hospital and her baby dies. And you know that that it that it's objectively sorry, I keep going back to this it's objectively so bad, you know? <laughs> and um that the analysis of um kind of like, of like, what kind of work can you do for what kind of money that Orwell is doing? Like, what are are the economics of being at the absolute bottom of society? Um, I think that he really leaves out this idea that um, at the very bottom of society is um, women who are getting pregnant and then are unable to keep their babies alive.
1: Right? Yeah. And are all the tramps men because many of the women at that stratum are dead? Yeah. Know, um, yeah. And, and you know, um, in two of these four novels, um, which are, uh, you know, uh, it's widely conceded, and you can tell when you sort of read them, they're all based on her life. It's a little bit when you read the four of them in quick succession, it's a little bit like watching The Crown on Netflix where they change the actors every two seasons because it's clearly the same life cast in slightly different ways then she gives a different name to the person every time Mm -hmm. um but um in two of them it it certainly is metaphorically implied strongly that she dies at the end this one and um said after leaving mr from Mackenzie somebody hits her hits the main character she falls and hits strikes her head against the table that one's not told in the first the other three aren't in the first person and the character hits her head and then this the uh, and slumps to the ground and the novel ends with two other characters meeting in the street and walking off together and there's been you know, strong implication that she has died and this one the vision at the end of the, the is it, you know, it seems in a way symbolically it's the commercial traveler next door. Is it the white, is he wearing the white nightgown or is he wearing the blue nightgown? In one, in one, in, in the white nightgown, he's like a ghost figure, a skeletal death figure, in the blue nightgown with the black spots. It's like a war, evil warlock figure. There's this, this dichotomy of this character. Again, like the fur coat, he's this drumbeat through the book, he's in the next room, this malevolent voice in the next room. And at the end, e- you know, either uh, either hallucination, I mean, it doesn't matter at this point as far as how the novel works, um, this figure enters the room. And it's certainly, it's hard to read that without, you know, assuming that it's, you know, it's really death has come into the room. Um, so, yeah, her her the thing I like about her bad, her objectively really bad circumstances yeah. is that um, Reese isn't isn't interested in just making her a completely, you know, she's not heroic at all. And that's what I really like about it. She's she's terribly vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but Reese doesn't shy away from from the you know, destructive or whatever, the, the passivity, which is very, very strong in all four books, uh, which I, as a reader, occasionally want to, you know, which is fine. This is what you want in a character. You want to be able to respond to them in a complicated way and, and say, you know, come
2: on, c- can't you, you know, well, engage that way? Just this two things I want to say. One, I'm so glad um, catherine you brought up down and out in Paris and London that's another one of my favorite books
0: oh, really
2: and <laughs> I all this I, I love that book um and I mean sometimes when I think of Reese I just you know you could call her books down and out in Paris and London yeah, yeah. Um, and the West indies but I you know it's funny to think of that book alongside this because things seem positively like, Pretty, pretty great. I mean, I know he was he was doing sort of investigative, immersive, immersive reporting. Um, But it's true that one of the reasons I'm drawn, I think, to her books is like looking at that world um, through very I mean, she's so female, but I, I like reading this or I like thinking this alongside something like Orwell's down and out in Paris and London, because that I did feel a little, I felt a little voyeuristic almost because I enjoy it so much. Like even when he's describing um, being down to his last, you know, four sous or whatever, and then having to go work in a restaurant, it just, things seem adventuresome and, and not so. um, There's like a quote, like poverty, poverty involves like a great swinishness like and i just whenever i read reese i'm just like yeah there's just no getting away like the smell of these cheap hotels like the real like you're saying the objective awfulness um about it but i do want to think i want to talk about the ending too but the other reason um i think brian you were saying there's part of you that's like on the one hand you're like she's so deeply passive um and sometimes I want to shake her, but actually I rarely want to shake her because she'll do that herself. She's like, if I just get a new hat, if I get a new dress, if I just find after two drinks, I'll be alive again. Um, but there's this other thing too, where there's this weird way in which maybe I'm saying too much about me, but she, the, that, that sense of help, hopelessness or awfulness I'm sort of drawn to it. Like She lets herself go there, um, but still observing all the while. So that's sort of interesting. I think that's, to be honest, that's a lot of reasons why I'm attracted to these novels. It's just sort of I'm, I'm, I'm comforted. Not in a way like, oh, I can just relate to that in a superficial way. But there's something, I don't know if it's like the death pull or some kind of passive pull um because there's a lot of folk wisdom about like poverty about what goes on between men and women about being a woman um and and city life so all those things create a kind of again I guess i come back to sensibility how does she do this um she could write about anything with this particular sensibility and i'll i'll read it
0: yeah i was thinking about some other texts that are about kind of, like grinding poverty and thinking about like what are the actual logistics of this life and there's on the one hand there's stuff like little match girl which is like has sort of a sentimental gloss and is sort of meant to make the reader feel a certain way and it's like you don't want to shake the little match girl for being passive it's like it's sort of like uh it's like the soft lighting like her passivity is part of the beauty of her death. you know it's like that she is so beyond um, anything she could do making the situation better. It's only that someone has to help her. And so it's like meant to kind of stir this sort of feeling in the reader and that that can feel manipulative. I think you know I don't think that that, that story is usually read as like literature for grown-ups. Um, and then there's books like I would say a Tree grows in Brooklyn. Which um I, I had a couple of these that I put put my notes with like what dates they came from. Because it seems like it like the 1930s and 40s, like the question of the Great Depression and what to do with poverty is a huge question for you know for every kind of thinker, like literary thinkers, political thinkers, economic thinkers. Like, what are we supposed to do with the fact that the economy can just collapse and suddenly everyone is poor? Um and so the Tree Grows in Brooklyn is published in 1943, but it's um, clearly about, you know, an earlier time. And um, and that's one where, I mean, she does end up less poor at the end, um, but there's also a feeling that like, that the game is rigged, that she's not in a situation where it's like, oh, if you, if you just saved your money, if you just, you know, didn't have a drunk father, you'd be fine. It's like, no, there's not, like the game is definitely rigged. And the book is very clear about how the game is rigged um, against her and her people um, and the other people in her uh, in her um, neighborhood. But I think in some way this this book is like in between that where it's like you think probably this particular woman, like if she did things differently, there's probably some way that she could be somewhat less poor and miserable, but it's not like an analysis of every single thing that she could have done to improve her economic situation. It's like a description of, like you were saying, like one very, very human way to be, which is completely miserable and hopeless and depressed. And Also, um, she's
2: caught, though, in the system is sort of rigged in terms of, I mean, she's stuck in this patriarchal, system and you know the men are all either kind of predators or prey the way that she interacts with them and the one other reason why I really find Good Morning Midnight fascinating is like in the earlier novels she's a sort of Brian was saying she you could see her like kind of growing up
0: mm-hmm.
2: growing up but going downwardly mobile economically
0: yeah.
2: um, and in this one she's like she's a beautiful woman grown old or middle-aged I'm not sure exactly how old she's supposed to be but I think like she's she's past sort of that age where her capital what she had as a woman um was high and um that's part of the I think that's part of where I think what you're saying about the system being rigged she's very like caught in that
0: yeah
1: Um, when I refer to when I referred to some of the passivity I actually wasn't um I didn't mean to imply that I thought that she could in any effective way get out of her predicament uh I I I find it a all four of the books together and then this one is sort of the 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 last and um the most the, the I I guess the darkest of the four I mean they're all pretty dark but uh I I feel that she's as a writer um i think she's presented in a very compelling way how how boxed in um this this woman is um and and 99% of it is because she's a woman um you know that the society you know orwell it's a totally different thing because he's male and there's just so many opportunities that he has that are, I mean, we don't even need to discuss them. There's, they're, they're just, there's so many of them and they're so big and she is completely stuck. Um, And so it's, it's not like I'm saying, Oh, why don't you do this? And then you'll be in a better situation. Um, It's it. And I I don't even want to, I mean, I find her in, all, all i guess i meant to say was that i think often i mean clearly to a certain extent you know Jean reese the writer is not the same as this character because this character did, is not the kind of character that could go on and, and write these four novels so it's you know very clearly a different person but she's drawing on a lot of her experience i love and, it
0: i'm recording a podcast i'm sorry sweetheart <laughs> lovey talk to data please you have to talk to Data lovey sorry no problem <laughs>
1: okay oh no, no i wish we could include these in the podcast that, you know, <laughs> <and> why not
2: <laughs> the circumstances there. exactly yeah
1: you know you, you here you are you're trying to have a room of your own and, and you can't <laughs> quite have it and you and, know and, and, and thinking about this book you know what, what this book feels like this extended riff on, on rooms, you know, she's clearly explicitly made this one of the framing or one of the, one of the structuring aspects of the book. And, 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 and and I think just this idea of, of, you know, yes, I have a room, but, but of course I'll lose it the moment I can't pay for it. And then this wonderful gradation of, you know, a room, a beautiful room, a room with a bath, a beautiful room with a bath, a suite. That's like the pinnacle when you get to yeah. the top the suite. <laughs> and then you hit, it's like the wheel. It's like the great wheel of fortune. You get to the top and you have the suite. And then as you start down, you go back down through the beautiful room with the bath down to the room, the room
0: with the bugs on the wall. oh. Yeah, they won't give you a refund, but they will pay for an exterminator to come and the room smells of sulfur for the rest of the day.
2: And to me that marks, but then they move (laughs) marks move and she
0: knows it's bugs. Oh
1: but it's that wonderful patterning that keeps keeps the book from being depressing, any of her books, because she patterns them so beautifully. Um, you know, this one begins with uh like or I'm a room or a room you've seen before. Yes. No starts with the yes and the no. And then halfway through, she repeats it with the yes, no, yes. About the room. And then at the very end, she ends it with yes, yes, yes. She's clearly, it's quite, it's quite definitely a reference to the end of Ulysses mm-hmm. because she, there's both the line. I, I, I put my arms around him and I drew him down to my breast and i said yes i will yes i will i can yes whatever it is and and she includes the pulling down and uh and embracing and it's 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 fascinating
0: that's really interesting
1: why she you know i've always resisted molly's soliloquy in ulysses um it always felt to me and i can i just i'm i'm just second guessing another male writer it yeah. always felt to me like a male writer's idea of of a female soliloquy and that's I, why i always resisted it
0: i agree and for the reason that is also the thing that Jean reese corrects for which is that in that soliloquy molly is just like wow isn't it amazing that my male partner is so turned on by my body <laughs> um and just think women are so hot and but she doesn't think like but what about my particular body and my particular presentation of my body, like my my hat, whatever, my clothes, my my, boots, you know, whatever it is, um, like it, that she just sees herself as almost like generically female, where Jean Reese shows um, Sasha as having just an absolutely relentlessly updating awareness of her own appearance and like there's that scene where she sees herself in the mirror in the bathroom the public bathroom and she knows she's seen herself in the same mirror before and she looked good when she was there before but it's like it's holding a ghost of her former self and she knows that she may still look good but she won't look as good as she did when she was there a few years before you know um, and she knows where all the good mirrors are the ones that yes
1: the ones where she looks better than in the other ones and uh and that's wonderful yeah. and this idea of the ghost of the film, you know nabokov was constantly playing with mirrors and images in mirrors and it feels nabokovian that she comes there and she's get greeted when she sees the mirror by the ghost image of the last time she looked in the mirror well
2: and there's um well there's a very famous quote from this book where she's just like my life looks simple, but it's actually a very complicated ring of like cafes that I'm welcome in and not and mirrors where I look good, rooms that are good for me. I also think just going back to the beginning of the book, Brian, when you mentioned the room says the room says no, like yeah. inanimate objects talk to her, um, which when I first read this book, I was like, did I read that correctly <laughs> the room? And then other things talk to her. So it's very, it's very, very strange um yeah within moments like she could go to the lavabo and the mirrors she knows which mirrors are good but then she's like oh i'm right before at that drink or i'm on that drink where i still look good and then there will be the next drink where it doesn't look so good the reflection
0: right
1: And she loses in the course of this book, you know, the, the, the present takes place over what a week, perhaps it's the, I think she meant one point she mentions like the last 10 days have been amazing. Haven't they, you know, ironically, but this thing about which cafes can I still go to where I haven't cried in public or, or someone's humiliated me, you know, my disreputable, you know, the, the, social view of me as a as an uh, unacceptable woman for society and in the course of this book one of her last refuges gets destroyed for her the the pig and lily Uh, and it's renee who ruins it for her and um and uh, i just think that's you know we see sort of one one additional step downward uh or one additional move of the walls in closer um at at that point and renee you know he's a guy right to to him this is nothing you know uh who who cares what the waiter thinks you know well of course she cares and she needs to care uh, what the waiter thinks
2: it is Um, the whole world is so small like when you said the walls close in a just a little more because you never go into anyone's house You never go, I mean, maybe they're walking outside, but it's like the whole city of Paris is basically cafes, these like sort of sad hotels, (laughs) um, bathrooms, (laughs) oh, shops, I guess.
0: When I was reading this, um, I was also reading um, Civilization and Its Discontents for our um, episode on that. And um, so I was just thinking about um just the idea of madness as being something medicalized like the idea of madness being something that should be treated by science and Mm. it this book seemed like such a repudiation of that because it, it just reminded me of a thing that i guess i read on you know twitter like uh people don't need therapy they need money um that there's like a certain amount of her you know madness that's actually just the smallness it's like the, the feeling of the walls closing in is these ways in which the whole society um, is not able to treat her properly. Like she's not, she's not able to be treated by, by anyone with respect really. And the worse her situation gets, the worse it is. And what she sort of um, envisions it toward the end of the book as a machine with all these tentacles and that she sees that some of them are like eyes Right? Um, right? and that that everything is both looking at her and also harming her it, like mechanically, that there's there's almost there isn't like a, a human mind that's controlling this machine. It's just like a machine that is designed to destroy her um, and judge her. And um I think that's true. Like I think that that's that's pretty much what the book is showing. Is something that there's not a way that she could have played this game differently necessarily. Okay. Like, and I this is the way,
1: oh, sorry. I I love the way that machine. If I had been thinking of that in a in a book I was writing, I might think of the arms with all the eyes. I wouldn't think of all the other arms that have the lights on them so that you have this vision of a machine that that looks at you but also lights you brightly so that it can see all of your flaws or yeah. all of your weakness that you're under this spotlight um,
0: yeah. yeah and you can imagine you know whether it's um, Like a Jane Eyre type uh, circumstance, or Freud saying, like, "Oh my gosh, okay," you know, taking notes in my notebook, a machine. You say you feel that you're being manipulated by a giant machine, Um, and to see that as um, evidence that she's somehow wrong about the world, or that she has like this, you know, madness. But I think that it's just it's her very correctly assessing the situation.
2: Right. Her being sort of her vision being the same, same one in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's always also talking about masks. Like there's those great scenes where she's like, I could take this off. I could also take it off, hang it on a nail, put a veil. Like then she starts dressing that mask that's (laughs) like detached (laughs) from her.
1: That's right. Get the mask to look better.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But it's sort of you're reminding me. I mean, this was written said was 1938,
1: 1939.
2: Published in 38, and it, yeah, yeah. So all Freud, Nietzsche, everything being so so bubbling in the um, in the atmosphere. There's also
1: yeah. a reference which I didn't really focus on until I was quickly. I said I, I, I said I read the four, but then of course since they're all they're all sort of about the same life. I realized that I better quickly skim through this book again to remember what's in this book as opposed to the other three. And in re-skimming this one, she talks about the Paris Exposition of 1937. It's right toward the end. And first time around, I just kind of bleeped over it. But this time I looked up that exposition. And as far as like setting it in 1937, this one for like the It's called like the, what, the arts and technology of the modern life. It was that expedition, exposition. And it's really wonderful to look at photographs of that while you imagine her going, she says she goes in through the Trocadero entrance and that it's all empty and beautiful, cold and empty and beautiful. So here's this like world exposition that's supposed to be attracting all these crowds, we get the coldness again which is over and over and over again in her work um and you know coming from the west indies never getting used to the cold yeah. um the emptiness the beauty the the lights uh in the water there's this wonderfully lunar desolateness to it and the fact that it's set in this monument to like world culture and, and the theme of the exposition was like peace and...
0: Well, hang and on. Course, on. I actually wanted to, to say something about that also, because I didn't finish, sure. it, but I was watching on YouTube a lecture from uh, Gary Leonard, who is a professor at, I guess, University of Toronto, um, who's talking about that element of this book. Um That uh, the setting is, this is just like from the little thing on YouTube, Um, the setting is the 1937, uh, 1937, the year of the Paris World Exposition, a last ditch attempt to build solidarity between and among European nations. Um, But the German pavilion showcased warplanes and the movie Triumph of the Will, while in the Spanish pavilion, Picasso premiered his painting Guernica um, to depict the terror of Hitler bombing the small town in Spain to help out the dictator Franco. Um, So... I think that the point of this lecture that he was making is that some of her feeling of despair has to do with knowing that the, we're heading back into a world war. And, and she, Renee, she
1: says, oh, you see that light up there? That's the star of peace. And Renee says, I think your star of peace is mesquin, which I had yeah. to look up. But like shabby, <laughs> you know, trivial. And then he goes on And in in English, you know, calls it vulgar, Um, this, you know, this meretricious star of peace. Uh, Yeah, it's a wonderful. I think
0: that the idea that like um, brutality and fascism is lurking in her life already and is very soon going to overwhelm whatever efforts to push it back. That that's everywhere in this book, I think.
2: Isn't there the, there's a character to Lise, her friend. Yeah. Who am I making that? It might be from another who kind of misses the war or like. Um,
1: Lise is the one who, yeah, she says something about how I wish, I wish there'd be another war because then I could just be out of it. She wants, she makes it clear that she wants to not be alive.
2: Right, 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 right. That's and right. She's
1: the one who's got the beautiful curly hair and it always smells good. And, mm-hmm. and that uh, the Sasha, the main character remembers her with great fondness. Uh, and, and then she says this line um, and then they, I think it's with her. They end up laughing ultimately at how awful everything is. They're just rolling around on the floor. Yeah,
2: <laughs> It is amazing to think of them between this. It's just the the pressure you know, of the wars. And then that's amazing about the exposition that in one room, this was happening. And in the another room, there's the Guernica painting. It really, but it's amazing because anytime you read her books, there's, there's usually not much in terms of dates or the social context.
1: Yeah. yeah she delays the date on this one till toward the end. Um, uh, she finally says, she, we know it's Going into winter, she keeps talking about that, but we don't know which season. And then, toward the end, as I, shortly before they go to the exposition, she mentions that it's
0: 1937. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it was it was published before they knew that there was going to be even more. You know, it's not like it's written in the 70s about this time. It's you know, right. it's definitely written yeah. before she knew what was going to happen.
1: Yeah. So um, the, of course, yeah, the, the Franco, the civil that civil war has has gone. And, so, and of course. Is it Renee? Somebody tells her that he's that he's been there and she doesn't believe it. It's one of the many things she doesn't believe. But but she's got that in the path, in the background. Um,
0: Um, We just um, we just did an episode on um, Eileen Chang's uh, Love in a Fallen City that um, was published in 1943, about 1941, which, again, has that feeling of like writing about World War Two without any perspective yet, like it's all just happening right that very second. Um, wow. And that one has a um, a lot of contrast between kind of spaces, like traditional Chinese spaces, and then what's uh, available in Hong Kong, which is like this kind of world without rules where everybody is sort of outside of um, whatever their original context was, which is both kind of exhilarating and scary. And I think mm-hmm. that there's some feeling of that in um in this book, also, where there isn't a traditional place that she could belong. Um, there's no you know family structure or like group of people that you know maybe were horrible, but they also are her people. Um, she's only a person who kind of exists between between spaces and in this sort of lawless, ruleless cafe and hotel kind of world, um, that seems pretty new, right? Like it's, it's not something that existed. I mean, I think that probably urban centers always had some number of people who kind of can get around without, without context in some way. Um, but it still seems like, um, gosh okay so they talk about passports in here and like how like people need fake passports but passports had only just been invented basically like people didn't need papers to to prove citizenship or to move from country to country until like world war one and um i talked about freud and world war one in this (laughs) (laughs) um anyway the so this idea that you need papers in order to move around um was fairly new and uh like really you know within the lifetimes of these people and the number of people who are in a sense kind of stateless like her so that's an increasingly like more and more people are in that position of being kind of without safety net or without context um even if that also means that they have more freedom
2: i did not know that about um about passports, so that's fascinating. But I, I do think I always felt that some of the more, the most sad moments in this book, or most despairing, as you say, um, is that sense of being just absolutely without community, especially in this book. Because at least in, um, is it Voyage or Quartet, the one where she's sort of like entering um, the dance hall world she sort of has friends, you know, there, um, in a community, but here she is just so alone. And so it,
0: alone. Yeah. It's sad.
1: Yeah. And even, you know, when we were first talking about this podcast and I'd been talking to Sandra and she was, had gotten me onto the Gene Reese, you know, I said, Oh, let's do, let's do good morning, midnight. And then in reading the four, it occurred to me that, um, You know, it's actually pretty helpful, especially to read Voyage in the Dark right before. That's the third of the four right before this one, because even though they're all four based on her, Voyage in the Dark is the one that goes back to the part of her life when she was a chorus girl. And so and Voyage in the Dark is the one that has the most about uh, having been raised in the Caribbean. And so that's the one where if you read that one and this one and then for and then just assume it's the same person, don't worry about the different names. Uh, you get a bit more of a, a background about about London, what she's leaving there, the people that she has to deal with there, the community that she loses there. Um, but even that community is, of course, a bunch of deracinated, very vulnerable women, all in this choral group, all all of whom don't have good support anywhere, mm-hmm. and then she's ec- extra deras- deracinated because she's from uh, the Caribbean, and yeah. and that's the one that most again you think of sort of the practicality of a room of one's own, which is talked you know that idea of a certain minimum material something is necessary to allow the the human soul to do anything except endure. And 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 for for Reese and you see it so much in Voyage in the Dark, this this drumbeat about being cold all the time, and uh, which is why I love the fur coat so much yeah. in this fourth book. It's it's that that's the that's the room, <laughs> the the really small room that she carries from room to room um, as she as she goes up the scale and then back down the scale. Um, and I just I find that kind of emblematic writing taking a certain thing like cold, room, coat, yeah. um and 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 mixing it throughout a book and making those simple ideas just just become more and more powerful um, as you read. it's my favorite kind of writing.
0: All right that's our episode on good morning midnight thank you so much to sandra and brian and to adam bear for our music as well as everyone at literary hub for hosting us as always we love to hear from listeners please rate and review us on apple podcasts or tweet to us at lit century pod on twitter or email us at litcenturypodcast@gmail.com. gmail.com thank you and goodbye till next month